Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Empowering Family Caregiver Show on Blog Talk Radio. My name is Susan Bida. I'm the co-founder of eCareDiary.com, and I am your host for today's show. So like many people, I thought that most people either died in hospitals or at home. And so a surprising fact to me is that half of all Americans now die in hospice care, and that is, approx- uh, that is apparently a $14 billion a year business and one of the most successful segments of healthcare in our country. Uh, who knew? So here to discuss this very uh, quiet revolution in hospice care are Fran Smith and Sheila Himmel, who are the co-authors of a new book called Changing the Way We Die. Fran Smith is a writer, editor, writing coach, and communications consultant. Uh, her work has appeared in magazines that we all know, uh, such as the O, as o the Oprah Magazine, uh, Red Book, Salon, Good Housekeeping, just to name a few. Uh, she shares a Pulitzer Prize as a reporter at the San Jose Mercury News. Uh, Sheila Himmel is a Psychology Today blogger and co-author of Hungry, A Mother and Daughter Fight Anorexia. She is also a contributor to Restoring Our Bodies, Reclaiming Our Lives, and her work has appeared in USA Today, The Washington Post, The Rob Report, uh, M Magazine, and the online magazine Obit. Uh, Fran and Sheila, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. So, yes, no, and, and you know, um, as I mentioned, uh, hospice care is, I, I don't think that's what comes to mind when we think of, well, how do most Americans die in this country? So tell us why, why did you want to write about hospice? Well, at, you know, as you mentioned, both of us um, are journalists, and we're also longtime friends, and our fathers um, died um, around the same time, um, and so we talked about it. And Fran's father died in the hospital. Mine was in hospice care, and it was striking the the differences in in how our families both um, you know experienced it and remembered and remembered it. Um, with my father, both of our fathers had very you know long long declines, and my father was also in and out of the hospital. But when we brought in hospice, um, it was like this level of anxiety just lifted for our family. The difference was just remarkable, and um, and we we had you know people to ask questions and find out what might happen next, and we felt like we were treated as a family, not as you know an encumbrance. Um, and then our memory, we were there when he died, and it was very peaceful. So we have that as a gift. Um, and then Fran and I started looking into it, and people kept telling us that hospice was the best thing in healthcare, that all healthcare should be like hospice, and um, they really wanted to talk about it. So that, that was the, the, the germ of our book. Well, that's, uh, I have to say there, there are a lot of, you know, when I speak to people about hospice, because I think, um, like you, I, I had a similar perception, and then experience with hospice care um, myself with my father-in-law. It was the first time I had experienced it and thought it was such a positive experience. 
So um, I'd like to ask you, I guess, uh, Fran now, uh, what, what did you learn about hospice that you didn't know before you started your book? Well, we learned so much, uh, so I'll try to uh, boil it down to just a, a couple of things. Um, one is that it wasn't depressing. So many people asked us going into this, you know, why are you writing about hospice? Isn't that depressing? And we found, you know, partly, you know, what you just said and, and what Sheila was saying before, the, the experiences for patients and for families was, for the most part, so positive that this whole topic was actually life-affirming. Hospice was really not just about helping people to die well, but it was about helping people to live fully in whatever time they had left. Um, we were also really surprised to learn how big hospice is. As, you know, you uh, mentioned the figure from our book, $14 billion industry. Since the book was first, you know, written and sent off to the publisher about a year ago, that figure has gone up even more. So it's now $17 billion. So it's, it's huge. Um, and we also learned that not all hospices are the same, are alike. Uh, quality varies, and in many communities, patients have choices of programs. So even though we don't really think about this when we get a hospice referral, it's important to shop around. And in the book, we talk about how to do that. You know, and then finally, um, a lot of hospice care is provided at home. And most Americans say home is where they want to die. And, and hospice really provides support to help people do that. Um, but hospice is not on the scene 24-7, so there is a huge, uh, there are places huge demands, the care places huge demands on, on family members and caregivers. So um, just just for clarification's sake, I'm sure many people who are not familiar with, with hospice will probably ask this as well. Um, so it's not necessarily uh, a specific place, hospice. It's uh, perhaps also a process. Yes, because, that, I mean, that is. This is Sheila. Um, go ahead. Very con yes. confusing. Um, the word hospice, you know, it sounds so much like hospital, and um, and in the origins of hospice, um, it was from the um, the knights of hospitalers of Saint Saint John, um, who took in ailing pilgrims, and so there was a place. And also, um, the founders of uh, modern hospice were in the um, United Kingdom, and there most hospice is residential. But for political and economic reasons, when hospice came to the United States, um, it, was, it was mostly done in the home. It's, a, it's more of a philosophy um, of life mm -hmm. than, a, than a place. Um, there are some residential hospices in, in this country, but by and large, People experience hospice in their own homes or in, um, uh, you know, long-term care facilities, which actually is where my father, um, where we had hospice. So it's really there are two things that that really um, distinguish hospice, and that one one is that in the philosophy that you are not your disease, you are a patient, you know, you are a person, you are a full person with emotional and you know other needs besides whatever is wrong with your body, and that the family is the unit of care. So that when hospice comes in, there's a social worker, there might be a spiritual care person, they bring in volunteers to help the family deal with you know, all of the, the practical things that are going on as well. 
So that's, you know, in a nutshell, that's what distinguishes hospice from from other types of right. medical care. And and as I said, um, th- it's a team. It's not just, you know, one person. Right. Uh, and care. so I think there is this, uh, you know, this overwhelming perception that, uh, you know, and I know this in conversations with my own friends and family, that when you say someone is in hospice, the assumption is, oh, they're, they're ready to die. So is, is that necessarily the case? Right. Well, that definitely is a reaction that we heard. And hospice is available under Medicare, under Medicaid, under most commercial insurance plans. Hospice is available for patients who have a terminal illness and a life expectancy of six months if the disease ran its natural course. Now, some patients outlive that and either stay on hospice, they get recertified and stay on hospice, or or if they do really well, they can go off hospice and and, um, come back into the service when their condition changes. Um, Many, because people think that, oh, hospice is for the very end, what happens is that though the service is really, people are eligible for the service with with the six-month prognosis, most people don't come until very late. The average... Uh, the length, the median average is 19 days, and a third of patients, more than a third of patients, come in in the final week of life. So it's really not a lot of time to get to take full advantage of the world of services that hospice can offer. Wow. So, um, so it's, I'm sorry that the average amount of time that uh, someone spends in ha- in hospice is again. Can you repeat that? It's 19 days, so you know half, half of patients are there for 19 days or shorter. Yeah, and and a third of patients are there just in the final, are you know on hospice care just in the final week of life. Right. Now, um, you know, there's been um, I, I was uh, really struck by an article that I read recently in the New York Times, written by a doctor, and um, she was writing about how uh, it's so important for doctors to get on board with helping patients who are on the road to dying to have a good death. And uh, I'd love for you to explain to us what what that really means and and if it's really possible based on what you've learned. Well, based on what we've experienced as well. I mean, my father um, had a good death, um, and it was very very peaceful. Um, His care was uh, focused on comfort, um, he once we once we brought in hospice, he didn't have to get up and go to you know occupational therapy or go to um, things that were just not helping. His medicines were were um, reduced, and it, the whole focus was on his comfort. I mean, and I think that's that's the key in what we call a good death. That um, you know comfort and the family is there. Um, and it's also understanding that this person is a person outside of their illness. They're not, I mean, often at the end of life we just, it's hard because we, we just remember the person as, as they're dying. Um, but hospice gives people the opportunity to, to really look at their whole life and, and, you know, grab whatever meaning they can, which is also really important to the uh, the survivors and and uh, yes and I guess um, 
one of the questions I have is, at, at, I guess, at which stage is it determined when, when I guess, the person dying or the person diagnosed with a terminal illness, at what, at what point is it decided that, um, that they need hospice care? I mean, I guess the question really is, uh, when there really isn't any other remedy or or solution to their to curing their disease or illness, is that the point at which uh, I guess it's determined that they need hospice care? Well, you know that's probably one of the most difficult questions uh, that patients and families and physicians face. Uh, there is there needs to be this idea of a six month prognosis, but but that's not there's no hard vast science about making those kinds of forecasts. I mean we've all know of stories of people who you know were told they were had two months to live and then they lived for six years. Um, so it's a very difficult thing, and, and also in the context of modern medicine, there's always something else to try. You know you can always throw something at an illness. So it really, there really needs to be, you know, deep conversations with uh, the patient. You know, if the patient can have that, you know, while the patient's still competent, and and family members, and working with their physicians to to really evaluate, you know, what are the treatment options? What is the likelihood of success with these treatment options? What are the possible downsides? And and really, what is the best course to follow? And and we, we write about this a lot in the book, but you know, it, it comes down to a patient's values. Um, what do they want their life to look like at the end? And if really what you want is to be with your family, to enjoy life as long as you can, uh, to hold your children, to walk, to sit in your garden, then you might not opt for that last probably futile round of chemotherapy or yet another stay in the intensive care unit. So you really have to kind of balance possible outcomes against against the you know the values and goals of the patient and the and the family. And so there seems to be uh you know obviously uh, as we've seen in the the news and around um uh, healthcare reform the the controversy over um hospice care and the terms being thrown out such as assisted suicide and death panels, um, what is the difference between hospice and assisted suicide? Um, so, so hospice is about managing pain, um, which could be uh, physical, emotional, um, and spiritual pain. And the hospice doctors are very skilled at um, calibrating medications, um, for comfort, not unconsciousness. Their job is not to, you know, put the patient out, um, but to keep them as cogent as possible. Um, and as we said before, there's, you know, this team is involved in balancing the care um, and that hospice treats the family as, as part of the plan. Now, assisted suicide is when one person helps another voluntarily bring, a, bring about his his or her own death, and this is legal in, you know, a handful of states. Hospice does nothing to um, promote death or, or to, to facilitate the death or to make it faster. It, it's all about 
keeping the patient um, comfortable. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that uh, that clarification. And um, uh, so, then why I guess uh, why the controversy and the use of of terms such as death panels uh, in in association with hospice? What what have you uncovered um, or discovered uh, in your research? Well, de- death panels was a phrase that came about through all of the political controversy over Obamacare, over the Affordable Care Act. And what what got labeled as death panels was a provision in the original legislation that would have reimbursed physicians for time they spent talking with patients about end-of-life care options. So, you know, if your doctor in the course of, you know, treating you and you have, you know, multiple chronic illnesses and you're getting sicker and sicker, you know, if the doctor spent time not, you know, writing prescriptions and, and looking over your body, but spent 20 minutes with you and your family saying, here are your options and hospice might be one of them. Um, mm-hmm. Ob- Obamacare would have allowed that physician to bill for that time. That was what, and that got called death panel. Uh, it yeah. really was, there, there was nothing death panel-y about it. Um, but because of all the controversy, that provision was withdrawn um, in the Obamacare in the Obamacare legislation in the Affordable Care Act, so it's, it's not part of the act that we have now. Yeah. But there was never anything, you know, that, that was a panel of people deciding who would live and who would die. Right. And, uh, well, one of the hey, You know, I, I would like to, to just add, there it really isn't yeah. any Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative debate about hospice care. Um, you know, Sheila and I kind of, uh, we, we follow, you know, all the news of famous people who are dying and how they die and who dies in hospice care, and it really, you know, it completely crosses the spectrum. You know, and I think yeah. there is, a, you know, there is a, a pretty good, you know, understanding across the spectrum, and you know, and this is, and, and, and even and people of all faiths, people of no faith, that hospice is a way of letting death happen naturally. Yes. Well, um, I'd love to turn now to uh, some of the stories in your book because you you do cover a lot of uh, different experiences uh, with hospice care, and I'm actually fascinated uh, by one of uh, the families, um, uh, Peter Farrell and his uh, and his family. And um, I, I, I was wondering if one of you could talk about Peter Farrell um, and sort of uh, summarize a little bit about his experience, just to give our our audience, uh, um, uh, an example from from of one of the family stories in your book. Uh, sure, I, I can do that. Um, I talked uh, at length with his family. This is Fran, and uh, Peter lived in uh, Portland, Oregon. He was 93, and he was really on a decline. And he decided that he really didn't want to continue, you know, down this slope into what he thought would be complete helplessness, incontinence, you know, maybe losing his cognitive abilities. So at at some point, and this was, you know, after um, quite a while and, and, you know, and and, and experiencing this decline, he decided that he just was not going to eat or drink anymore and basically do a fast until he died. And this, you know, again, this was one of the things when I heard about this, it kind of surprised me um, that this turned out to be a very peaceful way to die and it and it was not a it doesn't get caught up in the legality that assisted suicide 
gets gets caught up in because really, you know, if your body, you have every right to decide whether to eat, whether to drink, whether to not eat, whether to not whether to not drink. And he hospice came in and provided support for him, kept him comfortable, provided some support for the family. His daughter was a is a hospice physician and she was also there and and very helpful to him and within 10 days he was alert and comfortable and visited with friends for about eight days and then on the final day day and a half he he kind of faded and died quietly in his sleep my goodness how how peaceful and and what i thought was fascinating about the story i think like you i was i was a bit surprised to learn about fasting and that um that it's not uncommon an uncommon practice amongst uh um, as you, I think, as you said, uh, many people who are diagnosed with something and feel who don't want to uh, have the experience later of uh, going through all the um, the issues and complications. Is that is that true? Yeah, it's true. And what happens also is that at the end of life, often, you know, for whatever is happening in the disease process or physically, people just don't really want to eat. So. It's when people. It, it turns out to be not an uncommon phenomenon in hospice care. It, what's not clear is how often it happens with somebody like Peter, who makes this very conscious, deliberate decision to forego food and drink. And you know, and and by the way, it's it's, it's the dehydration that kind of kills him. It's not starving to death. Um, or whether it's people just there. For because of whatever's happening physiologically, they just really don't want to eat or drink, and you know. And at that point, the hospice team is always having to tell families just leave mom or dad alone. You know, don't don't try to force them to food. You know, and and a hospice physician told us, you know, she often tells family, he's not dying. Your dad's not dying because he's not eating or drinking. He's not eating or drinking because he's dying. Right. Well, let's, uh, I guess uh, we're, we're nearing the end of the show here, and I would love to um, help the audience understand better uh, how, how does a family go about choosing a good hospice, and I guess what are some of the questions one asks when considering hospice? Well, you first of all want to know um, that the hospice is Medicare certified. Um, you want to know uh, the background of the medical director, um, and is is he or she certified in palliative um, medicine? Um, okay. You want to know what the average uh, caseload is for the nurses and social workers, and then something about um, what services they provide. There are there are Medicare mandated services, but hospices interpret them in you know in vastly different ways. Um, and we always tell people one one good way to 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 choose a hospice or, or to rule one out is to call them and see what kind of reception you get on the phone. If, if you're immediately, you know, told that you have to fill out all these forms and that's it um, and your questions aren't fully answered, that's a good indication of the, the way the hospice operates. So, mm-hmm. you know, you may not want to, you may want to keep looking around. There are... Um, Usually, there are, there are some choices um, in hospice care in, in most you know in most communities. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and uh, I, I also want to turn now to uh, the family and 
Uh, I know you talked earlier about how the family is uh, in hospice. The family is called in to be part of that team of care. Um, let's talk a little, tell us a little bit more about uh, the family's involvement, more specifically uh, with regards to hospice. Well, there, you know, as Sheila said at the outset, the hospice really views, um, you know, it's the client as, it's not just the patient, it's the family. So there's all kinds of practical support. Um, there are people, there should be, you know, in, in hospice at its best, there are people you can call them anytime, day or night, 24-7, and, and really get any questions answered. And these are people, for any, you know, any of us who go through it with a family member, it's, you know, we feel very alone. It's we haven't been through this before, and even if we've been through it with someone, it's it's always different with somebody else. And you know, and and, and it it means so much to talk with professionals who really can tell you what to expect, who've seen it, who've who've who who understand your questions even better than you do, and and can make you feel not so terrified and and not so alone. And we we also write. Um, we have a couple of chapters in the book about the really incredible bereavement services that hospice provides. Not so, so they don't end their their relationship with you when when the per, when your loved one dies. But they're but uh, under Medicare, they they are mandated to provide bereavement services for up to 13 months after the death. And uh, Sheila can tell you some of those stories. Oh yes, I mean that's that's uh, that's interesting because I think. Um, one assumes that once you know you're you're the one who's uh, in hospice has passed on that they're really that's kind of where it ends. Um, I know that's that was our own personal experience with my father-in-law. I don't remember having any further um, uh, interaction with the hospice, but yes, if you could uh, perhaps share an example there. Well, we have um, these you know these two chapters about this, this bereavement group that. Met these were people who lost their their spouses um, mm-hmm. and were you know at the worst time of their life um, they they were um, none of them wanted to come to this to a bereavement group. They all said you know i 'm not a group person i 'm not a therapy person, and I definitely don 't want to hear you know other people 's uh, sad stories, but they all were having trouble you know, functioning in their daily lives. And so they agreed to give it a try. Um, and they, they went to a hospice-sponsored um, bereavement group, which was facilitated by a social worker. And two years later, there were three couples <laughs> came out of this group. I mean, and they, 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 what, they started out um, celebrating holidays together and going to, you know, ball games. They started with a Scrabble group. And they found that, you know, they could tell each other things that maybe family members um, didn't want to hear anymore. You know, it, there is, a, there is a, a saying that each each loss takes a thousand tellings, and it, that's really, really true. And when you're talking, you know, family members get anxious when, when um, people who are grieving, you know, seem to be wallowing in it or, or aren't moving along. And with mm-hmm. people who are in the same place, you're, you know, you're, you're free to just say it over and over again until, you're, you know, until you can move on. So these groups, I know, you know my mother was offered um, 
a bereavement uh, counseling, and she turned it down right away because she, you know, has friends in the area and all that. But and the and the hospice didn't persist. So I mean, nobody gets forced into, into doing this, but it is a it is a wonderful um, service that people are just completely surprised um, that that hospices keep you know keep contact with them. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the the whole um, and, and thank you both for writing about hospice care because I think it comes as I, there are a lot of things about hospice care that come as a, a pleasant surprise and um, and you know, I I have to speak from our own experience. It was a it was a pleasant and positive experience, and I, I thank you both for uh, coming on today's show to share. Um, share your learnings about hospice care. I want to share with the audience that if you want to learn more about Changing the Way We Die, the book Changing the Way We Die, uh, please visit www.changingthewaywedie.com. I'd like to thank our audience for tuning in, and I invite you all to join us next Tuesday, May 6th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for our next uh, show with Karen Francis, who is a certified dementia practitioner. Um, and she will talk to us about the HOPE Act uh, for Alzheimer's and uh, that would help improve the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. So we're very excited to have Karen, who uh, will be on the show for the first time. Um, Fran Smith and Sheila Himmel, thank you so much for uh, being on eCare Diaries show and uh, for talking about hospice care and um, really uh, uh, sharing the facts and truths about uh, hospice and um, and their website is changingthewaywedie.com. Have a great Thank afternoon. you for having us. Thank you. Bye-bye.